Acts chapter 21. I invite your attention with me this morning. Acts 21. We'll pick up at verse 17 and read through verse 26. Have you ever looked forward to something, even uh, sacrificed to achieve this, and yet been disappointed when it finally came about? Family reunion, perhaps, you fully expected would be filled with joy and gladness and turned instead into an ugly argument, a visit with old friends maybe that became immediately awkward and soured as the conversation went south. Paul, as you know, had been following, uh, as you who have been following this series know, Paul has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem and uh, even the most heartfelt pleas issued by dear ones to him along the way to divert him from his path because of the dark prophecies that had been made about what would happen to him there could not soften his resolve to go. It had long been on his mind to go to Jerusalem with an entourage of representatives from the Gentile churches that he had planted to greet the brothers in Christ of Jewish descent in the mother church at Jerusalem. With every step, we can easily imagine Paul's anticipation and excitement grew. But what he finds waiting for him there in Jerusalem surprises him in an unhappy way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for you to teach us from your word that we may uh, learn what we must from your truth, from your law, that our lives may more and more be what the Lord Jesus Christ has died and risen again to make them to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Notice the um, God-centered view of things with which uh, Christians uh, view the world and all events. It was not what Paul had done with God's help. It was what God had done among the Gentiles, through his ministry. And when they heard it, verse 20, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous, all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, 
but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men. And the next day, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. The depth of disappointment and the sense of betrayal that Paul must have felt on this occasion can be measured only against the heights of joy that he had taken in and the labor he had poured into the gathering of a collection from the Gentile churches to aid the brothers in Jerusalem. Later on in this book of Acts, we'll hear Paul telling Felix that after several years he had come to bring alms to his nation. The collection from all the churches he brought to Jerusalem in two of his recently written letters To the Corinthians and to the church in Rome, he reveals how prominent this matter of the collection was in his mind. Only after that errand of love was carried to completion, he explained in his letter to the Romans, would he be ready then finally to get to Rome, where he so desired to go to visit them. All over the Gentile world, from Corinth to Galatia, the the collection had been taken up for Jerusalem. See, though the famine that Agabus had predicted, had prophesied in Acts chapter 11, was by this time a 10-year-old memory, the effects of that famine were still being felt by the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem. And Paul could hardly wait. He was so excited to bring this brotherly aid from the Gentiles in the church to the Jews. To Jerusalem, this, this help, this aid for them. Even as we heard him say recently, even if he has to die in the process. Certainly it was his own deep love for his fellow Jewish Christians that compelled him to go, but also wrapped up in all of this is his urgent desire to see that the rift that had developed between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, that that rift be bridged and even closed. A united church. That was Paul's passion. And that is why he brought to Jerusalem not only money, but also representatives from the Gentile churches to meet with the Christians in Jerusalem. So he gets there. He gets to Jerusalem. What does he find? When he arrives. Well, certainly there is initially uh, this warm greeting of the brethren. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now, how much of that gladness was due to uh, the sacks of money that uh, Paul had brought with him from the Gentile Christians? We're not told, but we're going to do our very best to put only the best construction on this, right? On their hospitable response. And then the next day, James and the elders give Paul the floor, so to speak, at their specially called session meeting. 
They even glorify God over the news of the growth of the church among the Gentiles that Paul reported to them in great detail that day. Still no mention of the collection, of their gratitude to Paul, or even to God for this financial provision. Instead, James can hardly wait, it seems, another minute to get right down to the burning issue of the day. It's almost as if James says, Paul, that's great. That is fantastic. Thousands of Gentile Christians. Praise God. But while you've been away, thousands of Jews have become Christians too. They're zealous for the law. But they've heard some things, Paul. They've heard a thing or two about you. Word on the street is that you've been telling Jews who become Christians to forsake Moses. That's what we're hearing. We hear that you've been commanding people not to circumcise their children. People say that you've been going around telling Jewish Christians not to observe Jewish customs anymore. That's what we hear. Paul's heart must have fallen into his stomach. What? You've, you've heard what? About me? That I've said these things? Of course, we know that Paul never, ever said anything like that. He didn't tell anyone not to circumcise his children or to stop observing the Jewish customs. This was sheer and utter misrepresentation of Paul's position. He had not only not said that, he never even dreamed to think it. This was a total fabrication, a total, a total load of misinformation. Who was saying these things about Paul? How did it manage to spread? And why were people believing these things about him? And James almost seems to be agreeing with them. Even James, 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 you know me. You know my position. What had happened, of course, was a whispering campaign. Paul's reputation in the Jerusalem church was in tatters, had been even before he arrived, because of the rumor mill. The rumor mongers had spread these falsehoods about him, and now the church he so dearly loved was deeply prejudiced against him. I'm trying to imagine for a minute the, the searing pain of his heart upon hearing this news. For at least two years, he's been planning and anticipating and working on this visit. He'd been toting with him hither and thither over land and sea at great risk to himself. A load of money, probably physically heavy. The sacks now sitting on the floor or on the table between Paul and James. And without so much as an acknowledgement of the gift, James just drops this bomb in Paul's lap. Maybe you've had that kind of a feeling. You have known what it is to be misunderstood. Or worse, misrepresented by others, even people whom you love, 
and people whom you've served. Church leaders in particular are vulnerable to this, to this experience. Paul was not the first, he certainly has not been the last leader in the church to hear himself described by others in a way that in no wise represented their actions or their words or even their thoughts. To hear rumors about yourself come full circle, full of lies or half-truths. And that's where we make our first point this morning. It is to the church's leaders. In fact, I want to begin with you, church leaders, and then end with you this morning, though the lessons apply across the board to everyone, to all Christians. But pastors in particular, and elders, and deacons need, you need to be ready for this. You need to be ready for this, to be forewarned, That if it hasn't happened already, it certainly may, and you should not be surprised when it does. You may find one day, find yourself misrepresented, misunderstood, even maligned for things you never did, you never said, and maybe never even thought to do or say. And it doesn't really matter how much you have done to the contrary, how much you have loved those whom you have served, how much good you have done for them, how much sacrifice you have made of yourself for them. Look at this. I mean, despite all that he had done, and we could list it and make a long list, the Apostle Paul finds himself victim to a whispering campaign that turned the hearts of believers, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, against him. If this can happen to Paul, then no church leader is immune. And the level of betrayal can be intensely painful. Here is James, James the just, as he is called, a fellow leader in the church. Not pulling Paul off to the side to say, hey, brother, We need to talk about something privately. Uh, Let's move off in another room. Not giving Paul the benefit of a doubt. Not loving him with the love that believes all things and hopes all things. But right there in front of the elders. Putting the worst possible interpretation on what had reached his ears. How does it come to this? How do these things happen? Simply this, one person starts to whisper, I think pastor so-and-so believes thus and this. I think elder so-and-so did whatever, fill in the blank. And it doesn't really matter whether it was actually said or done. It goes around, and in the repeating of it, It becomes true in the minds of the whisperers and the whispered too. And all the better if there's just half a ring of truth to it. Yes, Paul did successfully argue that the Gentiles were not obligated to observe Jewish ceremonies. 
that circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't make a whit of difference for a person's eternal state. That Jewish customs did not merit anyone a place in heaven. He did. So when the whisperer said, I hear Paul's been commanding people not to circumcise their children. I've heard that Paul says not to continue the customs. It had a certain ring of truth to it, didn't it? A certain believability, a certain degree even of urgency to it. You know that this dynamic is always heightened in the church. The church is the place where this dynamic is the most intense. And to be quite frank, especially in Reformed churches, because of the stress that is laid on in our circles on doctrinal purity, on doctrinal integrity, on doctrinal orthodoxy, on doctrinal precision. I hear that he believes this. And so, really? Well, you know, he he did go to that school after all. He did graduate from that seminary. I know he read that book. He attended that seminar. So it must be true. It must be true. What do we have here? Sound the alarms. What kind of a heretic on our hands? Alexander McLaren, a hundred years ago, that faithful pastor saw the pattern of the text here and observed this. It struck me right between the eyes as I read it this week. It has always been the vice of religious controversy to treat inferences from heretical teaching which appear plain to the critics as if they were articles of the heretic's belief. These Jewish zealots practiced a very common method when they fathered on Paul all which they supposed to be involved in his position. Their charges against him are partly flat lies, partly conclusions drawn from misapprehension of his position, partly exaggeration, and partly hasty assumption. That's all it takes. That's all it takes is a, is a hasty assumption about what someone is thinking or believing, a conclusion drawn from a misapprehension, a misunderstanding of a man's position, that combined with a pair of these, whispering lips, to ruin a man's reputation, to undo his ministry, or at least significantly hinder or spoil it. Forget what he actually says. Forget what explanations or qualifications he should make. What really matters is what I infer from what he is saying. And now I believe that's what he believes. Because I've inferred from what he said that he must certainly believe that, and therefore he's a heretic. Like McLaren has it. It has always been the vice of religious controversy 
to treat inferences from heretical teaching which appear plain to the critics as if they were the articles of the heretic's belief. Alas, this pattern, my brothers and sisters, has played out over and over and over again throughout the history of the church. Our denomination is no exception. And the church leaders in particular need to be prepared to find themselves in the place where Paul was that day, hurt very, very deeply by the very ones he loved and served. Not cynicism, okay? Please understand. We don't want cynical leaders, right? Who are always just, just waiting to be burned, waiting to be maligned, waiting to be misrepresented. We don't, we don't want jaded leaders who hold back in their service for fear of being hurt. But we do need leaders to be realistic. Realistic in their service, realistic about what they may certainly face as a price for serving God's people, and, even more importantly, ready to respond well. Ready to respond well when it happens, which, by the way, is exactly what Paul does. And I want to return to that in just a minute. But before we come back to that, And to the leaders in particular, I want to issue for you second this word for all of us, leaders and congregants alike, for all of us. What this passage holds for every one of us is a warning, a warning about whisperers. Not once, but twice in the book of Proverbs, we read this. The words of a whisperer are like Delicious morsels. I always think of Turkish delight when I read this passage. Except if you've ever tasted Turkish delight, I don't know, maybe it's a delight to you. It's disgusting to me. But I still think of little chunks of Turkish delight. Like little delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. You've known this. Of course you have. You don't need the Bible to tell you this. You don't need the Proverbs to tell you twice. You know the rush, the tingling sensation of your ears, which immediately, of course, we turn into a very sanctified, uh, this is a very important thing, matter of, uh, of the heart and of the kingdom, you know, of course, to hear and understand this. little tidbit of news. When someone comes up and says, hey, there's uh, something you need to know about Pastor Jones, I need to tell you about Elder Smith. Can you believe what Deacon Brown did? Oh, you haven't heard? Well, for the sake of the church, you should know. And they're off to the races. And we're not inclined to stop them right there in their tracks, maybe for a whole mixture of reasons, maybe because we're so embarrassed for them that they should be spreading this sort of thing. Maybe we're afraid of offending them, lest they go and whisper about us. Maybe out of a sinful interest, quite frankly, in hearing the latest gossip. Those words are, the Bible says, like delicious morsels. Give me another. Oh, that's tasty. That's good. And they go down to the inner parts of the body. And because they go to the inner parts of the body, if I may press the Proverbs metaphor a bit, they're awfully hard to get out. 
Once you've allowed a whisper to slip candy into your body, it's there. And what seemed sweet like candy when first it hit your tongues turns quickly sour in your stomach. Because it sours you against that person. It sours you against that leader in the church or, or not against any Christian about whom you've heard these things. And whether or not it's actually true makes very little difference. It really doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Once you've let the whisperer make his deposit in your ear, it's very hard to get that morsel back out. So here's what we need to do. When a person comes to you to tell you this little tidbit, this little piece of news about so-and-so, out of love for both the subject of that news... And the bearer of that news, you need to stop him or her in his tracks. Whoa there, brother. I don't think we need to be talking about this person behind his back. If there is a concern, let's go straight to him, shall we? Let's go straight to her. Let's handle the matter straightforwardly and lovingly and justly and properly and biblically. But please, let's not whisper about others. If only, if only this had been done for the Apostle Paul, he would never have had the unpleasant surprise to find that an entire church had become quite certain of something that was entirely untrue, suspicious of the very one who had their best at heart and in hand. But hooray for Paul. He responded well. And this is where I said we were going just a few minutes ago and just a couple more minutes for this. Leaders, congregants, All of you, brothers and sisters, when you find yourselves on the unwelcome side of whispers, respond well. Respond well. At that moment, Paul had a couple of decisions, right? A couple of options, rather, in his decision. He could have said, and who would have blamed him? Paul could have said, you know what? Forget it. Just just forget the whole thing. I, I came here to serve you. I brought money with you. I've been collecting money from your brothers and sisters who they couldn't afford to give you this money either. They gave out of their poverty. So out of their poverty, they've given you these funds. I've brought these funds. I've come to minister to you. And you, and you, you do this? You respond to my love by, by ill-constructing what I've said? Spreading the worst about Look, I'm through I got churches in Asia and Achaia and Macedonia. They've been begging me to come. I'm going and ministering where my ministry will be received. Now, he could have done that. And who of us would have blamed him? But against all the tendencies of his flesh, Paul still loves the church still wants the best for the church. In this case, still wants the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers to be unified, still longs for the salvation of all people. And so continuing his pattern, as we've read elsewhere, of making himself 
all things to all men in order to save some. He takes James's advice. James says, you know, Paul, you can clear the whole thing up. You can clear up the suspicion, the fear, all the... All you have to do is this, Paul, follow our instructions. Go to the temple, go through the Jewish cleansing uh, you know, ritual, pay the temple fee for these four guys who are on, probably under the Nazarite vow, guessing from the whole haircut thing. Pay the fee for these guys to go through their rituals and get their haircuts and so on, all according to the law. And, and um, that will hopefully put all these rumors to bed about you and convince those who have believed them to change their perspective about you. So what does Paul do? Without a flinch. The next day. So he loves the church this much. The next day. He's off to the temple. He's off going through the Jewish rituals. He's paying for others to go through the Jewish rituals for four others. And that's not a cheap deal. Because this isn't about him. It really isn't. As far as he's concerned, it's about the church. It's about the church that he loves. The church he was and continued to be willing to die for. He will die, as we know, for the church when Nero's sword lifts his head from his shoulders. But you know, Paul died this day too. He died to his pride. Paul died to his own hurt feelings. Instead of clinging to his hurt and pain, he dies to it. He dies to his flesh that otherwise would have said, forget it, I've got more important things to do. He went to the temple. He went through the rituals, paid the fee, which, by the way, just as a little sideline, helps to remind us this, that to this day, there was nothing wrong with the worship of the temple or the blood sacrifices or the rituals of Judaism. Christians in Paul's day, many of them continued to worship at the temple, continued to give blood sacrifices at the temple, and, uh, and continue to observe the rituals of Judaism. This teaches us, of course, that the blood sacrifices and all of that sacramental life of Judaism was really nothing more or less than the sacramentalism of our own day, okay, of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. They both did the same thing. They pointed to Christ. So there was no sin in continuing on with blood sacrifices. In fact, they probably would have continued indefinitely if it weren't for the fact that God demonstrated that the Judaistic system was expired by knocking every single block off the other of the Jewish temple through his agents, the Romans, in AD 70. That's not really the point. The point is this. Paul, after being misrepresented and made the object of false accusations, responded with a conciliatory spirit. That's how Paul responded. A spirit of love, a spirit of greater concern for the church than for himself. Now I ask you, how much grace must this have required? More than I can tell. Paul was a man of like passions with us. He felt pain. 
the pain of betrayal, just like we do when we're betrayed, maybe even more so because of the largeness of Paul's heart. But it was not Paul's strength that sent him to the temple, bending over backwards, if only to bring Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians into the church and dispel the suspicion that still lingered between these Christians. I say it was not his strength. It was not his strength. It was God's strength, made perfect in his weakness. It was God's grace, which was more than sufficient for him, and that remains more than sufficient for you. Amen.